We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today on the podcast, we're joined by two-time Academy Award-nominated actor Jude Law. In conversation with broadcaster Samir Ahmed, They discuss his wide-ranging career from its beginnings in a London theatre and his 90s heartthrob status to his recent eclectic roles, including Albus Dumbledore and The Pope. This episode is part of our series, How I Found My Voice, hosted by Samira Ahmed. If you like this episode, do check out the entire series. The recording for this episode took place in July 2021. I remember before I had children, having to cry on stage or in a certain moment, it just filled me with dread. What I've learned since I've had kids, that emotional connection becomes so quick. I cry so easily now. And the more children I have, the easier I cry. I think it's this sort of sense of um, just permanent vulnerability to their well-being and, uh, you know, the love. rhymes to try and get the accent right and I was eating tons of steak and lifting weights to try and put on muscle and I was growing this beard and I suddenly thought what am I doing this is going to be a disaster I sounded ridiculous I look ridiculous I remember thinking at that moment I'm too far down this path I have to believe in it Meeting at four in the morning with just the cameraman, the sound guy and the director and shooting a little scene and me trudging through the mud. or That's one high from making movies. But equally, turning up and flying around the room and fighting aliens. I mean, I'm curious to try it all. I don't want to end my days or retire having not really done everything.
Hello, and welcome to this live podcast recording of How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed, and the idea is I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is one of the finest, and I've used this word deliberately, shape-shifting actors of his generation, who defies categorization in the roles he chooses, Jude Law. On stage, he's won the Ian Charleston Prize for Best Newcomer, been nominated for a Tony and three Olivier Awards. On screen, he won a BAFTA for the talented Mr Ripley and secured two Oscar nominations. He's played everyone from a robot in AI to the young Pope. And his willingness to push the boundaries with his acting was recently demonstrated in his leading role in the fascinating 12-hour live on-location TV broadcast of the folk horror drama The Third Day. Jude Law, welcome to How I Found My Voice. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you. It's lovely to see you. So, Jude, I always want to take people back to the start. Mini Jude, what was he like growing up in South East London? I would describe him as um, full of energy and enthusiasm and physicality. I love sport and um, make-believe from a very young age. I have memories of taking little figures and playing with them in parks and on the road and creating, I suppose, a world, you know, it's so easy to look back, isn't it, and make those connections and say, oh, I was creating drama or situation. But I remember making up games with my sister. And I grew up in a household where imagination and storytelling was a big part of our life, really. My parents were teachers. They read a lot and encouraged us to read a lot. And um, my sister was a phenomenal playmate. We made up huge, great games and fantasies and and then my parents also had a passion for theatre and, and film, but specifically theatre, really, which manifested in us all being kind of members of a local amateur dramatic society in Eltham. I remember coming down the stairs and all our furniture often being sort of removed from the house because they were using it on a set somewhere. And I'd come downstairs and the kitchen would be filled with adults drinking coffee and smoking and rehearsing. So there was always theatre and creativity going on in the house. And uh, it was a place I felt very comfortable. I was very curious and uh, I embraced this world of putting on a play or creating a, a story. I love the idea that whoever had a good idea, it was a good idea, whether you were a child or an adult. And it felt very democratic and safe and familiar. Do you remember any of the roles that you played when you were in this theatre club? I remember I played Wharton, who's the young boy, the little boy in uh, Another Country by Julian Mitchell, who wrote Wild, funnily enough, which I later went, was my one of my first films. And um, I remember playing Mamilius in The Winter's Tale. Such a terrific range. Did you know from very early on that you wanted to be an actor, like that was going to be a job? Yes, I suppose so, hoping that I would be, wanting to be. I remember thinking that the possibilities of being an actor on stage were realistic in that, you know, my parents would take me to see plays at Greenwich Theatre or we'd go to the National Theatre. And so the idea of getting a job there was possible, I suppose, although it was still a dream. Film, no. Film just seemed like an absolutely another world. So going to the cinema. And my mum was really good at taking me to see really interesting stuff at the, at the uh, Renoir in London and at the... Prince Charles, she took me to see really interesting, real art house stuff. Yeah, 
I read that you used to bunk off school in your uniform and take the train into central London to see films when you were a teenager. Three films in a row in Leicester Square. That's right. By the time I was in my teens, I was obsessed with film and wanting to be an actor and didn't really know how to get onto that path. I was just passionate to try and see everything. And if I knew stuff was coming out or I knew that there was only a short run at the Prince Charles, I would um, put on my uniform and then uh, get a train into town and time it so that I could see three films and come back home and walk in the front door and have dinner and pretend I'd been at school. Can you remember like an example of the kind of film that you would have made an effort to see that way? I remember seeing Diva. The French film, a big cult film of the yeah, 80s. Yeah, big cult film of the 80s. I remember seeing Mo Better Blues, the Spike Lee film, Running on Empty, that wonderful film with uh, River Phoenix and Judd Hirsch. Down by Law, the Jim Jarmusch film, that was another one. These are good cult choices. And there's obviously a range of, of, of styles and actors and, and directing you're seeing. But was there a favourite actor who had inspired you or who was like someone you, you know, you cared about? I very quickly honed in on Gary Oldman and Tim Roth and Daniel Day-Lewis. Gary Oldman and Tim both grew up sort of in my part of town in southeast London. So to me, they were not just brilliant actors with these extraordinary range of performances and edgy quality. They were also, I knew that they'd come from southeast London. So if, in a way, they were demonstrative of, of, of a way out and that it was possible. And Danny Day-Lewis was the first uh, actor I remember just being astounded I remember seeing him in My Beautiful Laundrette and really loving that film because it felt like a London I knew. It felt it was one of the first times I'd seen a film that didn't feel other. It felt like it was on my doorstep, like I knew those guys at school and I knew that language. And then I think my mum showed me Room With A View and I literally didn't believe that it was the same actor. I couldn't believe that someone could do that. Yes, yeah, so you play so this very prissy, uptight Edwardian Italy and London are the places where I feel I truly belong. I am something of an inglese italianato. E un diavolo incarnato. You know the proverb? Those three were very much bridges because they were British and because, as I said, two of them were, were local to me. But I'd always adored Christopher Walken, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall. I mean, they're really big names that I was fortunate enough to grow up watching at the height of their powers, you know. I gather as well that you were a huge fan of sci-fi literature, you know, comic books and and then Charlie Chaplin growing up. So tell me a bit about what you were reading as well as the films you were seeing and how you think those might have shaped the way that you developed your career. Chaplin was someone I just remember loving as a little boy. My father used to have a reel-to-reel and he would project Chaplin films at our birthday parties from a very young age and then I remember seeing him on TV they used to show wonderful Chaplin films Buster Keaton films Harold Lloyd usually at around home time I remember you know what I mean and they'd be on BBC too I seem to remember and so I really fell in love with that sort of physical comedy and physical dance really and then it was later on in my late teens that I rediscovered Chaplin and uh, really became quite obsessed with this pantomimical kind of performance where you could express and tell everything with such simplicity and such clarity and the the humour of it, but also the romance of it. He seemed to me to encapsulate everything that is possible 
for a performer telling a story, on top of which he was scoring it, he was writing it, he was producing it, he was directing it. I've actually just finished a wonderful film called um, Sunnyside with him as the main protagonist. He's, he's still a fascination to me. What was I reading? I mean, I did like graphic novels and I liked science fiction as a kid. I wouldn't say I was obsessed. I mean, it, it was perhaps a more comfortable read. I didn't really mature an appetite for sort of serious literature until a little later on. And a lot of this was led really off the back of these graphic novels. But a really important piece of writing in my late teens was um, Alan Moore's Watchmen, an extraordinary collection of um, which they've recently drawn from in this wonderful TV series. And then I think like most teens, I was maybe of my generation, I was really into the beatniks and um, this whole idea of liberating one's mind and um, living a life of adventure and expression, you know. Excellent. You left school at about 17, I think, to start your acting career in a soap, am I right? Yeah, I was, the New Stages was this amateur dramatic company that I was in until I was probably about 11 or 12. And a friend of my parents saw me in a play and said that I obviously took it seriously. He suggested that I join this national youth company called the National Youth Music Theatre. And I auditioned and I got in and I used to go in the summer, we go away and workshop plays and take them to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And But that became a really quite an important training ground looking back. I mean, the level of professionalism, the level of responsibility put on the shoulders of children from 13 to 18 was substantial and the, the quality expected was substantial. And it was from that that I got an audition for a TV show, which I then got and made the decision to leave school. And my parents were very understanding. It is interesting looking back now as a parent. They knew that this was by then absolutely something I wanted to do and I believed in and I guess they believed in me. And they, I promised them that if it failed, I would go back and carry on my education. And um, I was very fortunate. I, I left and I moved to Manchester. I was 17 years old with a box. I remember a box of my of books and some stuff and a bag of clothes. And that was it. And that was the beginning of my, my independence and my uh, professional career. How did you start to find your voice as a teen actor? Because it could be nerve wracking. You're surrounded by older people. People have been in the trade for much longer. I think going back to what I said initially, I was always very drawn to the creative environment and the safety of listening and learning. I'm sure you could ask people who worked with me back then or who knew me back then and they'd say, oh, my God, he wouldn't shut up or he had, you know, he had an opinion on everything. But I was also very aware that this was all about learning. If I remember rightly, I, I felt like I deserved to be there. But if you got a part, you had a right to be there. But at the same time, I was well aware of what I didn't know. I remember quizzing people about camera positions because I had no idea. I'd no, I got this part on this TV show. We were working five days, six day weeks. What was the soap? It was called Families. It was an attempt by Granada TV to combine the passion for Australian soaps and English soaps. So <laughs> half of it was in Australia and half of it was English. And they kind of merged the stories. But, you know, it was, again, great training ground to learn very quickly where a camera is, how to hit a mark, how lights affect you, learning lines on a constant cycle because, you know, you've got another four episodes to do the following week. And 
wonderful camaraderie, wonderful community amongst the cast. And in 1995, you won the Ian Charlson Award, which anyone in the UK knows is the award for you know actors breaking out and getting recognition. And you were nominated for a Tony and an Olivier um, as well. And this was your first big stage role. It was as Jean Cocteau play Les Parents Terribles, which went to Broadway, um, titled as Indiscretions. And it struck me you were with Kathleen Turner in the Broadway production, no less. What impact did that whole play and the, the reception you got have winning those awards? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was more the work that really impacted me. I had done various uh, productions in plays once I left families uh, at the the Gate, the Old Hampstead Theatre Club, the Bush. I'd done plays around London, but I remember walking on the Littleton stage to do my audition. And that was when I got a, a sense of just incredible excitement and thrill because to be in the national, to be on a stage that size... I knew that if I got that part, it meant it was a big deal. And indeed, the experience, again, was sensational. I was surrounded by these four phenomenal adults. You know, Francis de la Tour, Sheila Gish, Alan Howard, real greats of the British theatre, who taught me and looked after me. Just running around backstage and being in that building was an extraordinary turning point. And indeed, taking it to Broadway... It was slightly complicated, that experience, because I was the only one who went in the end, and I felt somewhat 
treacherous that I had traitorous rather that I'd I'd left my my kind of cast behind if I'm honest with you I've always felt like if you're asked to be in the room then you deserve to be in the room I personally enjoy working with actors who like to be you know they are there to learn they are there to act with you they are there to meet you eye to eye it's a healthy starting point now that maybe makes me precocious as a child but it's just the way I was. You sound like you were always comfortable. And clearly that's partly to do with the encouragement you got from your parents that it was normal, that it wasn't a... It was only until I hit really my 30s that what I was doing dawned on me. I think my whole 20s, right through till I was about 30, I had belief in myself. And it really wasn't until I suddenly looked around and thought, oh, this is my job. I have responsibilities Also, it now has to provide for my family. What choices I make can't just be creative and whimsical. They have to be considered. It was almost like I suddenly looked down and was rather scared of the height I'd gotten to. Oh, well, this is really interesting. I saw an interview with Paul McCartney where you got a sense that Paul McCartney, if you stopped to think about being Paul McCartney, it would be like looking down from the top of the Empire State Building and it would be very scary. So he doesn't think about it. Would that potentially what happened to you? I mean, let me just read you. I was going to ask this my next question. You got cast in Gattaca, the kind of Brave New World style science fiction drama after Indiscretions on Broadway. And I was reading an interview from that time and everyone was raving about you and a lot of Hollywood people are interested in you. And Andrew Nicholl, the, the director, said, when Jude auditioned, we all looked at each other and said, he's going to be a movie star. We just knew. Now, it sounds like you didn't know that, but maybe in your 30s, you were aware of that you were Jude Law, the movie star. And maybe that's what scared you. I've only really ever been interested in the acting. I love acting and I really love working with different groups of people on different projects that that pitch different problems and and require different approaches and different skills out of you and those around you. And that to me is what excites me and interests me. So I didn't set out to be a movie star and I, I don't consider myself really a movie star. I think it's more of an American perspective on one's career. I'm an actor and I work in movies and I work on stage. I suppose I became aware also that there's this persona who isn't me that starts to grow, which is what's written about me or how I'm perceived or or opinions that are manifested about me, judged on something that's happened in my life or apparently happened in my life. And alongside that, the responsibilities, as I said, of suddenly realizing, gosh, this is my job and I have to make it last because I have to make sure I'm earning next year and the year after, and it's not a set in stone. So those two factors were really more responsible for me losing my head a little bit and recognising suddenly that I had to maybe really consider what I was making and and why I was making them and who I was making them with. And um, I mean, walking down the street and being recognised is is really another subject altogether. That was a peculiar offshoot of what was happening in my life as an actor. And that was something I had to get used to alongside it. And that was odd. Yeah, looking back at some of your early roles, and I was thinking, I think you would describe your role as um, Lord Alfred Douglas in Wilde, the Oscar Wilde biopic Stephen Fry in 97 as a breakout role. It struck me even then, it's not like you're playing a conventional you know, handsome, interesting character. He's a devious, manipulative, complicated figure. And it seems to me so often you've chosen roles which are not leading man roles, but they're really interesting. How do you look back on even that particular experience? I mean, a lot of the time, you know, one chooses simply from what one's offered. I've done maybe one or two small films prior to that, but that felt to me like a... um, 
a really substantial part, a really interesting, complicated part in uh, a considered and intelligent period drama. Again, surrounded by really exciting and um, formidable people. Ah, leave me not to pine alone and desolate. And I love the challenge. There's a fear you get when you say yes to something or when you're asked to do something you agree. As soon as you get it, I always get this fear of dread, really. You're suddenly faced with the challenge of pulling it off. I like that feeling. It keeps you on your toes and it forces you also to check everything. You can't just sail in. You really have to make sure no stone has gone unturned and it forces you to ask the questions and, and also sometimes to push your comfort level. I mean, there were love scenes in that with other men that for a 24-year-old were quite explicit and quite you know, challenging. And it was a great lesson to learn that, that one can create that kind of environment where it's comfortable for the actors and the director gets what they want and you're telling a story. So I look back very fondly. I look back with great pride, actually. I felt I'm proud of myself as a 24-year-old or whatever playing a part like that. So great. Isn't he killing Mr. Wilde? It's perfect. It's perfect in every way. Well, you know, nowadays people would be thinking they should have had an intimacy coordinator and, you know, people think retrospectively about how much young actors were pressured into doing and perhaps they shouldn't have been. I'm not saying you were, but... Oh, no, I wasn't pressured in at all. It was a different culture then. It was a different culture, but no, there was no pressure. Brian Gilbert, our director, was just the most wonderfully careful, caring uh, leader on that project and I seem to remember very touchingly, he said, OK, we're going to rehearse the scene now, so... I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, so I'm going to take my shirt and my top off. And so I'm new too. And it was like, like, no, you don't need to. We know we have to do this. We'll do it. It's going to be fine. I mean, your roles, as I've said, have been really varied. And I was thinking about the real immersion in another world. So thinking about, you know, your southern accent in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Cold Mountain. Can you briefly talk us through the process of getting into these characters who are so alien to your own experience? Because you do it all the time and you clearly love the challenge, as you said. I suppose sometimes it's it's obvious the path you have to go down and what you maybe have to uh, accrue and, and information you have to understand or skill sets that you maybe want to examine, master. I personally have to sort of listen to myself, listen a lot to the director and what the director wants to draw out of the character and where the character fits into the piece as a whole. There's no point, I think, doing work that doesn't really lead you back to the the piece, because you can waste time making all sorts of um, detailed analysis of something that never really gets drawn on. So again, it's a collaboration, I think, with the director. Going back to the fear, I think it's looking at, well, what scares me here? What do I need to face? Am I terrified about pulling off this voice? Then I've got to work on that voice. I remember agreeing to to be in uh, Anna Christie, which is this brilliant Eugene O'Neill play, which I did at the Donmar. He's described as this sort of man-mountain Irishman, and he's, he talks about kind of beating up men and how many men he's taken on. And I remember finding myself halfway through the rehearsal, sort of, I'd done some movement classes, and I was walking around with all these peculiar rhymes to try and get the accent right, and I was eating tons of steak and lifting 
weights to try and put on muscle and I was growing this beard and I suddenly thought, I'm going mad. What am I doing? This is going to be a disaster. I sounded ridiculous. I look ridiculous. What do I think I'm doing? And I remember thinking at that moment, I'm too far down this path. I have to believe in it. And I have to know that I'm not there yet, but I may get somewhere. And, you know, you get to the end of the path and maybe you succeed, maybe you don't. But at least you've tried. You've, you've sort of looked, as I said, under the stones. You've done the work. Whether you feel your looks have affected what sort of roles you've got offered? Because it struck me that, you know, a lot of actresses have talked about being unfairly treated. And this is my opinion, having watched your career with admiration for years, is I have felt that in some ways male critics, at a certain point, started downplaying your acting skills because of your looks. And I wonder if you think that was true or I've just imagined it. I mean, the only time I see that manifest, if I'm honest, is when people seem to forget very quickly about work I've done in the past and talk about me as a sort of a romantic comedy star. I think they're quick to not look necessarily at all the work I've done and choose instead perhaps to talk about me in the way they perceive me through the way I'm considered as an individual in maybe my private life. I think that's true to say. I mean, I look at the work I've been able and fortunate enough to do and the people I've worked with and the work I continue to do, and it clearly hasn't had an effect, any negativity that they may have. No, that's that's fair enough. Your co-star in The Nest, Carrie Coon, very recently said, Jude's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body which I thought was a really astute observation looking at your CV. You know, you talk about all your roles. I was thinking about Road to Perdition or Gigolo Joe in AI. Is that a useful way to describe you? Possibly, yeah. I take that as a double compliment. I mean, the character actor is perhaps just how I approach my work. I like to find the stuff I don't know that my character knows. I like to find out what that is and I like to apply it to myself. I don't like to find myself in the part particularly. I mean, I think I root myself emotionally to the part. If there are similar emotional connections or triggers, but I like to layer up and um, lose myself to it. So I suppose that's true. And I'm I'm thrilled that she thinks I'm, I look like a leading man. That's great. Thanks, Carrie. <laughs> Um, well, The Nest, which is you know, the film that's just out now in the UK, although it's been out in the States already, it's such an interesting role that you play in it. It's about an imposter, a working class boy who's bought into the 80s dream of high finance and he kind of hangs out with all these kind of posh bankers, but is secretly always on the brink of ruin. And he's essentially acting all the time. And I, I just wondered, playing a role like that, do you draw on yourself in a way? I drew on... Uh quite a few people that I know. And what struck me when I started putting Rory together was how common this problem is, actually. I think this sense of 
putting on a brave face, putting on a bit of a performance for people rather than really allowing yourself or your own fears or your own insecurities to come out. And at what point does that performance actually become you? So you're back here full time? Oh, yes. We've just bought a beautiful farm in Surrey and we're thinking of a pied terre in Mayfair. <laughs> it's just small talk. I saw some deposits you made. It's nowhere near what you're spending. Don't worry. I have a huge check coming in at the end of the month. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. In a way, Rory's been putting it on for so many years. It is him. He's not being insincere. Um, what we find out is obviously that he's he's trying to move away from a him he didn't want to be. And we did all sorts of work building a very real and detailed past as to why Rory decided to, to move on. And, and it's hinted at in the film. If there was anything I drew on from myself, it was this, uh, an energy I sometimes feel exhausted by that I have, where I feel like I have to be buoyant. And I think it comes from wanting to entertain my kids and wanting to look after people. And um, I'm one of those people who feels like I have to kind of, you know, make sure everyone's all right and taken care of. And there was an element of, of me in, in that side of him, for sure. In a sense, you've answered a question that's coming from the audience. How has being a father affected how you work as an actor? And it sounds like from thinking in your 30s about your responsibilities to actually the way that you played this latest role, it, it has affected you. It's also given me, I remember before I had children, having to cry on stage or in a certain moment, it just filled me with dread because it's the ultimate test in many ways. You have to get yourself to a place where you either believe or you trick yourself to believe that something is you know, emotional enough for you to well up, whether through joy or through misery. And what I've learned since I've had kids, that, that, that emotional connection becomes just so quick. I mean, I, I cry so easily now. And the more children I have, the easier I cry. I think it's this sort of sense of um, just permanent vulnerability to their well-being and, uh, you know, the love, I suppose, the love you um, feel. Got to come to another few questions now in the time we've got left. I was thinking the closest you've come to a kind of big blockbuster franchise before Harry Potter was the two Sherlock Holmes films you did with Robert Downey Jr. And Matt Damon, who, of course, you know, recently expressed concern that the superhero films are devaluing actors. And I wonder if you worry about that and if you've ever felt the pressure to put on tights and a mask. I don't know that they devalue actors. I'm a great believer that things go in cycles, right, and waves. And the truth is that, that Hollywood is, is a huge money-making business. And at the moment, it seems like that's where they're making their money and that's where they're throwing all their money. Now, it's a great shame that that's having an effect on middle-budget films, lower-budget films. That and COVID restrictions, I mean, we're in for a really rocky ride. But I also believe that things you know, have their time. They're like pendulums. They swing backwards and forwards. And plenty of actors are making a lot of money and having a hell of a lot of fun making those films in tights. So, you know, I don't know that it devalues them. Um, well, you, you put on the Superman costume, didn't you, trying out for Superman Returns, and you didn't like it? I did, and at the time I decided it wasn't a path I wanted to take. I was in Captain Marvel because I was offered the part and I was really curious to see how these things were being made. Um, and it was a completely unique experience, being a part of something that had this the infrastructure around it 
was all set in place and you knew you were one of many. And yet there was a sort of a language in your particular film that was unique. But around you was this system that was just stamping these things out, you know, and, and linking them all up. And I, I was fortunate to do it with two really wonderful directors and they made it a lot of fun. Making a film like The Nest, meeting at four in the morning with just the cameraman, the sound guy and the director and shooting a little scene of me trudging through the mud or doing a scene in one take with Carrie Coombe, which is like basically like doing a, an Edward Albee play. That's one high from making movies, but equally turning up and flying around the room and fighting aliens. I mean, I'm curious to try it all. I don't want to end my days or retire having not really done everything. Question that's come in from the audience. I think a lot of people would be asking, is there a character that you've played that you feel closest to? I really love playing Albus Dumbledore. He has a really complicated heart and in many ways a very sad life and a sad journey, but he's such a beautiful soul and he has such a mercurial and magical look at life. What were the three biggest mistakes that you made last time? Uh, caught by surprise, sir. Mm. What else? Didn't parry before counter curse, Very sir. Very good. The last one, the most important one. Not learning from the first two. <laughs> he also has pretty fantastic skill set, which is quite nice. Being able to solve problems on set by saying, well, why don't I just make that thing appear? Think, oh, yeah, OK. <laughs> you know, the film The Holiday, you said you found it tricky to approach that role, where the character kind of fitted your own look and didn't need an accent or a costume. It was tricky because I felt that was one of the first times. In fact, I had done a romantic comedy. I'd never done one before that. And I was curious to see what it was like. I'd always been a fan of those beautiful Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart romantic comedies, Bringing Up Baby or um, Arsenic and Old Lace. Or, you know, I, I love those films. Uh, but I did find it tricky. Tricky, first of all, that there was such an emphasis on humour and on comedy and, and learning to uh, pull that off on set and on camera is, is very complicated uh, and tricky. It's not easy to do. And I felt also that I was somewhat exposed in that I was playing the good looking guy next door. And that puts a bit of pressure on you. You know, suddenly you're like, do I look all right? Do I have that? You know? This is the question I've been dying to ask you for years. Michael Caine is an actor that you've sometimes been compared to, and not just for playing the same parts in the remakes of Alfie and Sleuth. But there's something about his attitude and his star quality. He was a star at a young age. And you know, people still study, you know, that the sort of acting masterclass that he gave. What do you think of the comparison? And do you think there are any fair ones? I'm really lucky to have worked with him and to know him a little. And uh, I really love him as a man. But I don't see many comparisons, really. We grew up in South East London, but obviously in very different eras. I take what you just said as a massive compliment that we have a sort of similar approach. I hope that's the truth, because he, yeah. he carries himself so well with such dignity but humor and so I take that as a huge compliment I don't really think we're particularly similar though he's Michael Caine in, in most of his roles and that works because he is just an out and out movie star you don't want anyone else to show up you want Michael to show up right um I think more later in life he's kind of you know pushed that this, his Scrooge in A Muppet Christmas Carol is a great thing but no I know I think it was more just the idea of 
the attitude. Being British full stop has a big effect on how it always makes me laugh. You know, if you act up in the UK, you're told to shut up. You know, if you act up or you're, do you know who I am? Everyone's like, you don't be a wanker. You don't behave like that. You can get away with it in America. In America, it's almost expected. You walk in a room and it always makes my skin curl when you see that happening. You know, people behaving like there's something special because they make films or because they're, they're a little bit well known. Michael doesn't behave like that. And I hope I don't. There's a lot of interest now, isn't there, in streaming and, you know, how they're changing the work that actors do and longer form formats. Again, another question is, would you do TV? And I suppose that's in the broader sense, including the likes of Netflix or Apple TV or Amazon Prime, or is it going to stick to movies? I've already done a little bit, although it's an interesting question because when Paolo asked me to do The Young Pope, I, up until then, had always really only been interested in in the medium of film in sort of 90 minutes and there was something challenging and, and perfect to me about that. But Paolo, he written this script as if it was like a 10-hour film. And we, we filmed it as such. And then he cut it into parts. It wasn't really playing up sort of episodic storytelling. And I loved it. The opportunity of playing a character over that period of time and the, the slow reveal of character, the peeling away was a much slower process because you weren't hitting this sort of three-act structure where you knew that by 40 minutes you kind of had to have people on your side or not. You knew you had a much longer time. I found that fascinating. So I'm, I am very interested. It's all about the people and the characters to me and the story. It's very exciting. We've talked obviously all about your acting career, but I did want to end by asking a bit about the charity work you do, because it struck me that you've used your voice, yes, for a number of charities, but quite specifically often about war and refugees. You've been to the Cali refugee camp, you went to Afghanistan with the UN back in 2007. Refugees are actually a politically really controversial issue in countries like Britain now, aren't they? Yes, they are. And it seems to have been uh, drawn into all sorts of political conversations you mentioned Calais. I was just curious to see for my own eyes what I I couldn't believe was happening just a couple of hours south from where I lived. And uh, I think anyone, when you, when you have a human interaction and you see people with children or their few worldly goods suffering, it, it's incredibly upsetting because you feel suddenly, I would like to think one always wants to see what one can do. I don't think you can turn your eye away from from people suffering like that and uh, it seems to me to be a very very big issue at the moment and one that we have to face alongside the issue of climate it seems to me like this is the future the world is changing in a, at a very rapid pace and um, one will affect the other and we all have to start I think in you know just embracing people who are less fortunate or in in situations of peril what I'm watching at the moment in Afghanistan is devastating. I visited there and I can think of, gosh, it really upsets me. I, I can think of uh, at least 25 women I work with out there who were the most extraordinary individuals. And I'm really genuinely scared. I don't know where or what's happening to them at the moment. And I have no way of finding out. It was a long time ago I was there. But, you know, I have personal memories of women who were striving to build a, a community who were you know, running schools or running um, health camps or running radio stations and TV shows from their front rooms. Young girls who have been shot at but still insisted on going back to school. And right now, everything they built and in the time that they built it since I was there 
is being destroyed. Jude Law, can I just say, it's been a real delight. Thank you for being on How I Found My Voice. I hope it wasn't too painful. Not at all. It was I Found My Voice. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. Mm-hmm.